it is hard for us as human beings to kind of see what is coming next in events. There are changes afoot, and we kind of know something's changing, but we can't quite see how it's going to come out. And so often, when we think we know, we're wrong. So let me share with you a few people who thought they knew exactly what was coming next. And so a few years back in 2007, Steve Ballmer, the, the CEO of Microsoft, said this. There's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. Ah, but before him, there was Daryl Zanuck, executive at 20th Century Fox. In 1946, Fox made movies. He says, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will get tired of sitting at a plywood box every night. Ah, but before that, there was... Uh, the president of the Michigan Savings Bank, who was advising Henry Ford's lawyer not to invest in the Ford Motor Company in 1903. And he says, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is a novelty, a fad. And then, even before that, Sir William Priest was the chief engineer of the British Post Office in 1876. And he said this, he said, The Americans have need of the telephone, but we do not. We have plenty of messenger boys. Right? It is hard for us to see what's the big thing coming next. I've been hearing for the last, I don't know how many years, that cryptocurrency was the next big thing. Right? People aren't going to use U.S. dollars or whatever anymore. They're going to switch to cryptocurrency. And that still may be the case. I, I don't claim to be able to see, but that, that idea took a hit. If you pay attention to the news, FTX was a cryptocurrency trading firm that was worth $32 billion a month ago and just went bankrupt. And I guess a million investors may have lost everything in that. Uh, the, the guy who ran it was Sam Bankman Freed. He was on the cover of Fortune magazine. They, he, they spent the money to rename the NBA's Miami Heat as the FTX Arena. Um, and now this company, well, they might still have their name on an arena, but they, they might not exist. So when we think we see what's coming, something that seems like it's, it's going to last and will never go away, man, we may not be seeing clearly. Today's passage is from Daniel the prophet has a vision where there's four terrifying beasts. And what I'm going to argue today, though, is in that vision, Daniel is seeing not just the next big thing. He is seeing ahead five or six hundred years of history of what will take place. So I want to dig into this passage, but I want to preemptively apologize to those of you who do not like history. Because to understand what this passage says, we've got to dig into a little bit of ancient Middle Eastern history. And I will try to make it as straightforward. I would really encourage you, I know I always do this, but, but this might be really helpful. I'm not going to put verses on the screen. So it, when we get to the verses, you might want to just walk through it. But on the other side, there'll be blanks to fill in, but that'll, I'll help you fill in 
what are the things that fill in those blanks? This passage is different than, than the ones we've studied so far. We're going through the different parts of the Bible. This is our last one in the Old Testament. So next week, we start into the new. Uh, next week's the first Sunday of Advent, which means it's going to perfect timing, going right into talking about the birth of Christ. But this week, um, we're, we're doing a special kind of a literature called apocalyptic literature. So we've looked at, um, in the Old Testament, we've looked at law, right? There's the laws that God gave. We did a lot of history. Uh, one Sunday, we talked about the wisdom literature, which includes like the Proverbs and the Psalms. And then more recently, we, we looked at the prophets, uh, men and women who spoke from God. Apocalyptic literature is a special kind of prophetic of the, of the prophets. And when you think apocalyptic, the first thing that comes to mind is the end of the world, right? Oh, the apocalypse. Well, let me explain that because the word apocalypse actually just means unveiling or revelation. And so the first, in the New Testament book of Revelation, the first word is the apocalypsis. And Revelation is just a translation of the Greek word apocalypse. And so Revelation uh, gives, this is a great example of this kind of literature, it gives these striking images, right? Things you don't forget that get your attention, that convey spiritual truths. And if you are familiar with Revelation, it speaks a lot about things, and it does lead up to the end of the world. So that's why apocalyptic tends to mean in people's minds, end of the world. But it's not always that. It's just striking visions in which God's truth is revealed. It's, it's like it, it gives you God's perspective in words that, that, can't, that just convey more than just rational words can or, or in, in that way. So in the Old Testament, there's lots of versions of apocalyptic literature. Zechariah is one of them. Zechariah uses the, uh, he talks, one of his visions is of four chariots, and all the horses and the chariots are of different colors. And that bears similarity to things in Revelation. In fact, a lot of Revelation draws on Old Testament apocalyptic images and then expands upon them. Ezekiel, he is, he's, he's the greatest of the apocalyptic prophets. He gives a lot of great visions. And I debated about doing just this one. I want to give it to you real quick. But it's called the Valley of the Dry Bones. And Ezekiel sees a whole valley full of skeletons. And God says, prophesy to the skeletons. And he does, and he sees flesh come on the skeletons. And then God says, prophesy again. And he does, and it says breath comes into the skeletons. And so these, these dry bones are brought back to life. But here's where you got to be careful with apocalyptic literature. What does that mean? What's that foretelling? Well, the passage itself actually tells you that, that it's a foretelling of God will, will give life again to the people Israel and bring them out of captivity. It specifically says this is about, you know, they're saying their bones are dry. Well, God is going to give them life by bringing them back to Jerusalem. But many interpreters have often wondered, is it also more? Is it foretelling even a greater event, a future resurrection where they're dead or raised? And so by the time you get to the New Testament, we have another place in the Bible where it says there'll come a day when the 
the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise and it will take place in the twinkling of an eye. So, so apocalyptic literature gives you pictures of these things, but the question is, what does it mean? How do we understand it? That's why I find it fascinating to dig into these passages. So that's Ezekiel. Those are some examples. I want to dig into Daniel's vision of four terrifying beasts who are then defeated and replaced by one like a son of man. This vision corresponds to a a dream, a similar vision from Daniel 2. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue or really it's it's an idol um, that has four different kinds of metals uh, in in the idol. And that is knocked down and replaced by a stone. And so these two things are going to correspond. So I'm going to, in my handout, you'll you'll see kind of where I I compare them, how 7-4 corresponds to 238, etc. So chapter 1, or verse 1 in chapter 7, tells us that Daniel is living in Babylon. He had been taken there as a young man as part of the exile to Babylon, the, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and took a lot of the young, promising men um, into captivity to serve. And so while there, he, that, that's where he ends up giving Nebuchadnezzar an interpretation of the dream in chapter 2. That's another chapter worth reading. But this vision comes at the time of a different king, Belshazzar. Now Daniel is not so young. And he is serving in the Babylonian court as one of the wise men, an interpreter, and an advisor to Belshazzar. And so that's, that's the situation. In the vision, he sees four beasts come out of the Great Sea. Well, the Great Sea is the Mediterranean. That's, the, that's what they would have immediately known. It also, though, represents something. The sea represents disorder. And chaos. In the Jewish mindset especially, the out of the sea was unpredictable. And so chaotic things come out of the sea. And uh, so out of the sea arise these four beasts successively. So what do they mean? Well, later in verse 17, chapter 7, it says these four beasts represent four successive kingdoms says, these four great kings, beasts, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So when it says kings, though, it's really, these are four world empires. And it will, just like the four statue world empires. And oftentimes it speaks of ruling over all or ruling over the whole earth. Well, we know it's these empires were, were extensive, they were still based in the, the Middle Eastern part of the world. It doesn't encompass the China or the Americas or anything like that. So, but but there's talked about this way because they will rule over God's people of Israel. God's people will be under the rule of these four successive empires. And God's people will have to, to deal with this. So I want to now... As we go through this, I'm going to start identifying these four empires because the, the text gives us clues as to what they are. The first one, as we read, it is a lion with eagle's wings. 
So Babylon, their symbol was very clearly a lion. In fact, this is the, like, the Ishtar Gate. There's other statuary of Babylon they, where they are a lion. The corresponding one from Daniel 2 is it says it's the head of gold. And actually the Bible tells us that Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So the Babylonian Empire was the one under which God's people were at that present time of Daniel's vision. It says a lion with eagle's wings. If you think a lion is the great predator on land, an eagle is the great predator in the sky. And the, the, that would be the idea of what Babylon was like. They were this predator that had conquered and taken territory. The second of the ones is a bear raised up on one side. and Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After the Babylonians, here's where we get into history, it would be the Persians who would overthrow the Babylonian Empire. But not quite just the Persians. It would actually be the Medes and the Persians together. These were two distinct people groups who spoke a similar language, that they were united by King Cyrus, and then they had the power then to overthrow uh, the Babylonian, the city of Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. And so it's sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire. But what happens is, is the Persians mostly over, overshadow that of the Medes. And you really very rarely hear the Medes again. And that's in the, in the passage. A bear raised up on one side. In the, the statue one, it's the two arms. Are two arms of silver are the, the ones that represent the Medes and the Persians. There's a duality. It's two, two groups. If you look at Daniel 8, another one that refers to this empire, it talks about a ram with two horns, but one horn is bigger than the other. So eventually, really, we just call this the Persian Empire. But initially, the Medes were a part of it. So the Bible's giving you clues as to which, which one. And the Persian Empire would be extensive. They would, they would actually go further than the Babylonians and make it a more extensive empire. But there's one land, at least, they would not be able to conquer. The, the Persians would try and fail to conquer Greece. So I have a question that I want to ask. Do we have some teenagers in the house? Can, can one of our teenagers, I know they're all hiding up in the balcony, um, so that's why i got to call them out. So can one of the teen teenagers tell me what people group was key to stopping the Persians from conquering Gr Greece? Can someone from Burnt Hills tell me which people group was key to stopping the Persians from conquering Greece. Someone from Burt Hills, say it out. The Spartans, yes. The Spartans were at Thermopylae. There you go. So, so just to be fair, what people group is known for using the, ba the bagpipe as their instrument? The Scots, right? Okay, just... Just, just to be fair, I know we probably have other school districts too, but, you know, those are the, the ones. Uh, all right, that's a side note. Um, all right, 
So the Persian Empire would be extensive, but they would not be able to conquer Greece. And a few hundred years later, what would happen? Greece would conquer them. The third beast was a leopard with four wings, or the middle of bronze. Four wings and four heads. So what are leopards known for? And not, don't say spots. Speed. They're fast. And, and out, of, out of Greece would come a conqueror who with lightning quick, quick armies would, would run through the Persian Empire and conquer it in three years. Alexander the Great would lead the Macedonians and the Greeks and overthrow the mighty Persian Empire in a mere three years. In fact, he would keep going. He'd go even further and go all the way to India. He, he, hated, he never wanted to stop conquering. Um, he only stopped conquering when he got a fever and died. And this is where it says the leopard has four heads. Um, he, had, he had four generals who served him and enabled him to count the four wings. Well, when he died, these four generals took over and became the, really the, the Greek empire split into four different empires, four different rulers, uh, Ptolemaic, Seleucid, Antigonid, a few others you could, uh, but, but here's the thing, so the, but they would still be seen as, as a cohesive Greek culture. This is known as the Hellenistic period, and the Hellenism would spread, it would spread the Greek language and culture throughout the Middle East. Um, all the Mediterranean and further to the, the east. So that was the third of the, the, the beasts. And then the fourth one is the most vague about it. It says it's a dreadful beast with iron teeth. It does not, not correspond to any particular animal. It says it's different than all the other beasts. And it has ten horns. And so out a little further to the west would come another empire. And it would overthrow and slowly conquer the territories, that uh, the Hellenistic areas, and keep going. And this would be the Roman Empire. And it would be different in a few different ways. One is it started out as a republic, not a kingship. It would later evolve into an empire. There's a whole story with that. Um, the other thing that was different is Rome would often rule by client kings. When it talks about the ten horns, I believe that's talking about how they would install kings whom they, that would answer to them. And so we know a great example that's going to apply in our Christmas time, Herod the Great. Rome installed him as the king of the Jews, even though he wasn't Jewish. But they would rule their territories through, through client kings. And and so that was the, the, so those are the four beasts that would rule in the time over God's people. And the Jews, they would relate differently to them under Babylon, obviously destroyed Jerusalem. The Persians would let them return and even aid them in, in rebuilding the temple. There would be a tough time under the, the Hellenistic kingdoms where you would actually have the Maccabean revolt. And that would be a whole another war that, that the Jews had with their ruler and in many ways, at first, the, the Jews did well under the Romans. Again, they had their own client king to, to rule, rule them. And so they had, they had it in somewhat an easier time. But then there would grow, grow more and more tension as Roman taxes increased and Roman rule became more oppressive. So 
So in going through those, I want to think about what is God saying in giving all this to us? Why is he doing this? What's the message for the Jewish people in exile? What does it mean for the people of God? Well, one clear message is this. The Babylonian Empire, which looks so strong, would not last. They, they probably could hardly conceive of it being overthrown with the great power by which they conquered all of them. But in fact, it would seemingly evaporate overnight. The city of Babylon would be taken without a fight. The, when the Medes and the Persians arrived, they, they would easily overtook the city. It's like the Babylon had lost its will to fight. That's a that's a different story, actually, in the book of Daniel that tells you about. And I think about how the, the cryptocurrency FTX, right? It, 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 a month ago, is worth $32 billion, and then all of a sudden it's worth nothing. You know, that kind of thing happens. You know, what seems to be so solid, it can be overthrown. So that, that's, so what, what is God saying? Well, one is God orchestrates history for his own purposes. God orchestrates the events that we see in our world. God is playing the long game. The, the amount of history is, like I said, it's five or six hundred years worth, but God is working towards something, and ultimately he's working towards bringing his kingdom to earth, which is the, the, where we're getting to next. But, but we, we can't see what's coming, but, but God can. Now, I'll, just to be fair, I'll, I'll admit that... The, Bible interpreters and scholars and academics will argue over the interpretation I gave of this, and they'll say, they might say, well, quibble with this or that. But I still think it, 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 it's an amazing prediction of what would happen over five or six hundred years worth of history. The second thing, so the second part of this that I think would say to God's people, so Babylon would not last forever but that the fall of Babylon was not the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan for his people. They probably thought, well, if God just gets rid of Babylon, everything's going to be fine. I mean, wouldn't you think that? Like Babylon had, had did this, but the fall of Babylon would not be the end. In fact, they got rid of Babylon. One beast was replaced by another beast and yet another beast. The Jewish people would be under the thumb of one empire or another for all that time. Even though they'd be allowed to return under the Persians, they still would not have their own sovereignty. They would not have their own king. Um, they would have all the, these challenges. So, so just getting rid of this empire was not God's plan. God yet had something more. The other question I want to think about is, what does God use to represent these empires? Well, one, he uses an idol, a statue. That's a, it's, a, it's a false idol. All of these empires would base their rule on the promote, promotion of the pagan gods, the false gods. They wanted to legitimize their rule by claiming divine, the, the gods were on their side. And they oftentimes, that's why they ended up forcing the worship of those gods upon the Jewish people and pose that on that. And so that was always the challenge. How do you stay faithful to the Lord God Almighty when the culture we live in is, is telling us we need to worship these other gods? The other thing they use to represent them is ferocious beasts. Now, I, I can guarantee you, these kings did not see themselves as beasts. 
They saw themselves as wise, enlightened, beneficent rulers who were doing good in the world. But the rule of man's kingdoms always turns beastly. Right? Even if it starts well, it can so often turn violent, oppressive. Um, I, I had a, an example that came to mind as I thought about this is you'll be back by King George, right? The England at one point was the one ruling over our, our land. And I love this song. It's my favorite part of Hamilton. And so King George, who sees himself as a good guy, right? He's England. He says um, in the verse, You say the price of my love's not a price you're willing to pay. You cry in your tea, which you hurl in the sea when you see me go by. Why so sad? Remember, we made an arrangement when you went away. Now you're making me mad. Remember, despite our estrangement, I'm your man. You'll be back. Soon you'll see. You'll remember that you belong to me. You'll be back. Time will tell. You'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise. Empires fall. We've seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. And then the last verse of that song. You'll be back like before. I'll fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. And when you're gone, I'll go mad. So don't throw away this thing we had because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. The empires of human being, human rule, has, can so easily turn beastly and, and do damage. What is needed is a different kind of rule. And that's what we see happen in Daniel 7, verse 9. 7, 9 starts, as I looked. It's going to shift viewpoint. So 1 to 8 was in Babylon on earth. Now the viewpoint shifts and even the, the, the way of language, it shifts to po more poetic language as a symbol of that. So it switches from earth to the realm of heaven. And then what do we see? We see the Ancient of Days. What an interesting name for God. The Ancient of Days. Think about what that's saying. Think God, the one who is before all time, and rules always and will always be. The ancient of days took his seat. He's, he's ruling over, you know, you think in Babylon the king, but no. His clothing is white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. It's talking about white as snow is symbolizing righteousness. The, the hair of his head like being white symbolizes wisdom. You know, the wisdom of age is, is the, the idea of that. So the eternal God, the, the ancient of days, his rule is righteous. His his rule is wise, and yet there's power. It says a, a, his throne were fiery flames, its wheels burning with fire. And, it, and so his rule is based on this, this incredible power and majesty. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So his rule is active. His rule is sendable, right? The stream of fire. And it says a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So God's servants are, are beyond counting. So a thousand times a thousand is a... we have a math teacher in the house? 
A million, right? He has a million servants. And then he got 10,000 times 10,000. Uh, that's, that's 100 million who are worshiping, honoring him. And it says, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Meaning now God, the ancient of days, he's going to issue his judgment, his ruling. He is the judge of all, not some petty king in Babylon. And then in verse 11, he goes back to earth. Meanwhile, so the vision switches back. And it talks about the, uh, the horn, which is the, the boasting of the rulers of this world and the, the, the kings and beasts that would, that would, uh, that would just you know, cl- make claims, claim to be ruling everything. And it says, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed. So God issues his judgment and he puts an end to the, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of this world, the rulers. Uh, the beast is seen for what it is. It's destroyed. God brings its rule to an end. It talks about the other beasts. Their dominion was taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a season and a time. Meaning some of these beasts, they would continue as, as a people group. The Persians would continue. city of Babylon would continue, but they would not rule anymore. But it's talking about how God would take away the rule of that, that fourth beast. And then it shifts back up into the eternal realm again, into heaven again. So one yet more, sh- more shift. And this time, so God puts an end to the rule of the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire. And so the next thing that emerges is a figure like a son of man. And so now, there's a duality of this. this. The Son of Man rides on clouds, and he approaches the Ancient of Days. He's in the divine realms. So the Son of Man, this is verses 13 and 14. Um, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was present, presented before him. So the Son of Man figure is, has aspects of divinity, and yet, it is one like a son of man. He is in the form of a person. This is contrasting the son of man with the beasts. It's different than all the beasts before. If you, the thing that's interesting, if you go to, to Genesis chapter 1, day 6, two things are created. The beast of the earth and also mankind. And so they're... They're of a kind, but they're also different. And so this is the ruler that God would give would not be like those other rulers, would not be like another beast. And so he's presented before the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, and it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And so this is saying... That God will give authority. He will present his king. Not an angel. He's a human being. He's not a beast. And he will be given authority to rule not just a particular people, but all peoples, all nations, all languages. God is going to install his kingdom on the earth. And it will happen right in the midst of that fourth dreadful beast. Daniel 2, 
Very similar idea. Four metals. The, the fourth metal was an iron and clay mix. And it says, after you have this false statue, it says, a rock uncut by human hands will come. Where, where would a meteor come for? Come from the heavens. And it will strike the statue and utterly destroy it. And it will be like the chaff blown by the wind, while the rock would become a great mountain that will fill the whole earth. See, both of these are the same prediction. And here it is. There will be a succession of empires from Babylon forward that all of them will find their legitimacy in the, the worship of the pagan gods, the false gods. But God will break in and assert his rule upon the earth. God will supplant the worship of the false god of statues and idols by bringing one who will bring the truth. And God will install his chosen king, one like a son of man, one that is human, but also of divine origins. And that son of man will execute God's rule upon the earth and bring about the true worship of God Almighty. That's the prediction. That's God's ultimate fulfillment of the plan that we see in Daniel 7. And 500 years later, when the Jewish people were under the rule of a Roman Empire, there would be a young woman, a virgin, a maiden. And she would, she would be, uh, have an appearance by an angel. And he would say to her, God would speak to her through this angel and said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. One who is a son of man, son of God at the same time. Jesus would when his time of ministry came, first thing he declared, the kingdom of God is at hand. You're not going to have to wait for it. What you've been waiting for for 500 or 600 years, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, it may not look what you're expecting it to look like. The kingdom of God, let me tell you about it. And Jesus began, that was his favorite sermon topic, teaching about what the kingdom of God would be like. And the other thing Jesus would do he would refer to himself often as the Son of Man. And when he was asked if he was the Messiah, at the very the key moment of his trial, he's asked, are you the Messiah or not? You know, quit, quit you know, being vague about this. And Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He referred back to Daniel 7. And there was no doubt what he was talking about then. When his followers saw his miracles, his power, his teaching authority, they knew that he was it. He was the one. He was going to defeat the beast. Right? He was going to defeat the Roman Empire. And here's where Daniel gave us this incredible prophecy of what would happen, but yet left part of it as a mystery yet to be revealed. That's what Paul talks about in his Gospels. He says there's a mystery that had not yet been revealed. And that would be, how? How would the Son of Man, how would God deal with 
the, the, the beast, the, the Roman Empire, the powers of this world that were oppressing his people. And, and the assumption is it would do it like all the other kingdoms would do it, right? Military power. But God, the Son of Man, would destroy the metal statue, would dethrone the beast in a completely unexpected way by humbling himself and submitting to death. Rather than taking a sword and stabbing the beast, he would let him own self be torn apart by the iron teeth of that beast. Jesus would acknowledge only one authority, that he would become an absolute obedience to the Father and submit himself to the Father's will of bearing the sins of the world upon his own shoulders. That's how he would bring the kingdom. Philippians 2 tells the story. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So Jesus was divine, but he came like one, like a son of man. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, before God could bring the kingdom, he would have to do a work within us that would enable us to be a part of the kingdom. He would have to deal with the guilt and problem of sin within our heart. And only by giving his life on our behalf could he accomplish that work. That's what it would enable him to defeat the real power that have a hold on us. It wasn't the power of these kingdoms that was the problem. It was the power of the evil one and the power of sin over us. That had to be defeated before he could bring true victory. And then in Daniel, the rest of, um, the rest of Philippians 2 going on from there. So, just as Daniel 7 said, God has installed the Son of Man. So it talks about in Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the glory of God the Father. See, what Daniel 7 was talking about is the same as what Philippians 2 was talking about. And it's not about what yet will happen now for us. It has happened. Jesus has been installed as the king. And Jesus has established his kingdom on earth. It is not visible in the way the, king, the other kingdoms of earth are. But his rule is over those who yield to him as their king. To those who are willing to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in their life. And his kingdom is growing throughout the whole earth. And it continues to this day. It offers a different way of life than the kingdoms of this world. God, rather than taking over some kingdom of this world and making that his kingdom, he started one from a small seed by which it's growing and growing. He's building his own kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. That's the prophecy of Daniel. I had a friend who, when I would preach like this, she, she came to church, but I, she, she had questions about stuff. And she says, why do, 
why do preachers always talk about Jesus as Lord or King? Isn't that like the Middle Ages or something? And, and she did not like that, illustri- you know, that idea of, of Jesus as the King and Lord. And, and her idea was, wouldn't it be better to describe you know, him more as like a life coach? Right, you know, someone who will give you good guidance. Like that would be a better picture of what religion should be about. That is not what the Bible offers. It is very clear on this. God has installed Jesus, the Son of God, the same one born in Bethlehem. He's installed him as the king. And you got to decide where you stand with that, right? And if you've come to believe that that is true, that Jesus really is the, the, the Son of Man, the one whom God has given authority and rule over this world, that he's building his kingdom, even though in our eyes, it's in, in the eyes of human beings, it's, it's not visible. There are four things you need to do. The first is bow. What do you do before a king? You bow. You honor him as the king. You, you, in your spirit, you need to acknowledge he is the true king. He can rightfully rule over my life. And I acknowledge that. That's one. The second thing you do is you declare. You have to speak it. It says if we declare that Jesus is Lord, we are included among his people and hence are saved in, into eternal life. We have to declare that Jesus is the king. It's, it's our words. That's why worship is so vital to us, that we come and we declare together in song and in word, Jesus is the one true king over all people. So we bow, we declare. Third, we have to honor. And not just with our words. We have to honor him as king with our life. That means we orient the way we live our life around that truth, that Jesus is the rightful king. That's why we, we, we seek his word, because Lord, show us how, to, how to, to do what you want me to do. Show us how to live for you in all our life. So we bow, we declare, we honor. And then the last thing we do is we serve. If he's the rightful king, we offer him our service. What we do in our life, we want to give our time, our energy, our, 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 our life to, to, to building him and honoring him and, and seeing his kingdom grow. We can become servants of this kingdom. And it's, it's a good kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. I, maybe you're here and, and you are more like my friend who thought maybe Jesus is more like a life coach and, and you're, or you're just investigating. You're, you're trying to think, is this, is this true? Can I believe this? I, I want you to think about this question. Who would you want God to put in charge of this world? Is there some other political figure? Is there some government you say, no, they can, they can be trusted with rule over this world. No, none can. We needed one who, who, who is not of this world. And, and here's the good news, right? The one God put in charge is the same one who put his hand on the leper and touched him when no one else would. The one God put in charge of this world is the same one who had compassion on the woman who had been sick for 12 years and no doctor could heal her. The one God put in charge is the one who stood up for the woman who was about to be 
be stoned for her sin. And he stood up for and defended her. That's the one God put in charge of this world. Who else would you rather have be in charge? Who could do it? Friends, that's who we worship this morning. The picture we have in another apocalyptic literature is he's a lion. He's the king. But he's also the lamb who loved his people to give his life for us all. Let's worship him with all we have in this morning.